invite you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 23 through 25 this morning. The Word of God reads, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've done a lot of reading in church history. And in my reading I've become convinced that we are a soft and pudgy church. Living in a soft and pudgy age. It has not always been this way and indeed is not this way in many sectors of the global church today. The history of the church runs red with the blood of martyrs who have been killed for their testimony to Christ And to his word, there is a nearly endless catalog of stories of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who have yielded up their reputations, yielded up their property, yielded up their livelihoods, their jobs, yielded up even their own lives for the truth of the gospel. Following Christ is a dangerous and a costly business, or at least it should be. One of the more stirring accounts of persecution and martyrdom comes from the time of the English Reformation. In 1520, a group of Cambridge scholars began meeting in a small pub on the campus of King's College, a pub known as the White Horse Inn, and they met in order to discuss and to debate the new reformed ideas that were coming over to England from Luther's Germany. This group of scholars included men like Robert Barnes, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Miles Coverdale, Thomas Cranmer, Thomas Bilney, Robert Clark, John Frith, John Lambert, and many believe also William Tyndale. It was Bilney who had been converted a few years earlier while reading Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and he seems to be the man responsible for bringing the other men to the White Horse Inn and leading them to embrace the Reformed doctrines, chief among which were the doctrine of sola scriptura, which says that Scripture alone is our sole rule of faith and practice. It's the Bible alone that tells us what we believe and what we do. And also sola fide, or faith alone, which says that sinners are made right, justified in the sight of God by faith alone, and not by works or merit. These men became leaders of the English Reformation, and nine of them became martyrs of the Reformed faith. Thomas Cranmer was appointed the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1532, and he was the leader of the English church during its rocky transition from Roman Catholicism to Reformed Protestantism. During much of his career, Cranmer was not what you would have called a stalwart of the faith. He was often seen trying to straddle the line between political expediency on the one hand and doctrinal conviction on the other. It was difficult at times to tell who it was who actually held his allegiance, whether it be King Jesus or King Henry. For instance, he famously twisted scripture in order to legitimize and to justify the divorce of Henry VIII from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and also his subsequent remarriage to Anne Boleyn. But Cranmer also took strides to significantly reform the Church of England's doctrine and liturgy. He was the author of the influential Book of Common Prayer, which is still in use in the Church of England today, and also the 42 Articles, 
which became the precursor of the 39 articles, which remains the church's confession of faith. In 1547, Henry VIII died, and he was succeeded by his teenage son, Edward VI. And though Edward was young, he was a convinced Protestant. And Cranmer and others took the opportunity, they seized the opportunity of Edward's very brief reign to press the accelerator on the reform of the Church of England. But in 1553, just six years into his reign, the sickly King Edward contracted tuberculosis and he died. And the events that followed created great turmoil in the nation of England. And through political intrigue, Mary, who was the only child of Henry VIII and his first wife Catherine, ascended to the throne of England. Mary was a fervent Catholic not least because it was the break from Rome that had allowed her father to put away her mother and to take her out of the line of succession. Well, upon ascending the throne, Queen Mary immediately set out to purge England of any and all Protestants and to restore England's communion to the Church of Rome. And it was during her brief five-year reign, hundreds of Protestants were martyred for their faith which earned her the epithet to which she is known to history and known to us today as Bloody Mary. On the 13th of November, 1553, Cranmer and four other Protestants, including Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were tried for treason. They were found guilty and they were condemned to death. And after being imprisoned for a time in the Tower of London, they were sent to Oxford to stand trial for heresy. And throughout their trial... Ridley and Latimer held fast to the confession of their hope without wavering. And on October the 16th, 1555, they were burned at the stake. It is said that as the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer turned to Ridley and he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Ridley himself cried out, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Latimer died quickly, the flames arising and igniting the gunpowder that was hung around his neck. Ridley's fire struggled to take root and to consume, the lower half of his body being burned, but not ascending to the upper half, and so he died in prolonged agony. It's said that he repeatedly called out, Lord, have mercy upon me, I cannot burn. Let the fire come upon me, I cannot burn. But he did eventually die, faithful to the end, holding fast the confession of his hope without wavering. And there overlooking the courtyard, up in the tower, was Thomas Cranmer, who was forced to watch the death of his two friends. In all, Thomas Cranmer spent two years in prison, at one point, he smuggled out a letter to a friend in which he wrote, quote, I pray that God may grant that we may endure to the end, end quote. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley did. Thomas Cranmer wavered, however. Under the interrogations and the frequent attacks by Catholic apologists, he caved. And finally, in the early months of 1556, Thomas Cranmer signed a series of six recantations 
Each one building and building and building. And finally, the last, the sixth, being a sweeping renunciation of the gospel. In it, he denied the biblical doctrines of the Reformation. He fully accepted Catholic theology, including the supremacy of the Pope and the doctrine of transubstantiation. He even stated in writing that there was no salvation to be found outside of the Catholic Church. He expressed his joy in returning to the Catholic fold, and he requested and received sacramental forgiveness and participated in the Catholic Mass. You understand what I'm saying? The unquestioned leader of the English Reformation had broken. Thomas Cranmer had denied the faith. What a victory for Queen Mary and for the Pope of Rome. Though he had recanted, Queen Mary was still determined she was going to make an example out of him. And so she still ordered that he be executed for treason. And on March 12th of 1556, Cranmer was forced to recant publicly during the Catholic Mass at the University Church in Oxford. He wrote out his statement ahead of time, submitted it to the authorities, and when the day came, he ascended into the pulpit of the University Church and he began to read what he had written. He began with a prayer and an exhortation for the people to obey their king and their queen. But then he deviated from his script. And there before the leaders of England and the leaders of the Catholic Church, he suddenly renounced his recantation, professed his faith in the Reformed doctrines, and said that if he was to die, the hand that had signed his recantation would be the first to burn. He then added, quote, And as for the Pope... I refuse him as Christ's enemy and the Antichrist with all his false doctrine. He didn't make it much further because he was pulled down from the pulpit and dragged out to the place where his friends had been burned just a few months prior. And as the flames began to grow up around him, he held fast to his vow and he plunged his hand, the hand that had signed the recantation, into the fire and he cried out these last words, Lord Lord Jesus Receive my spirit, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Now I begin with that story in order, in order to underscore today's text. It, it's a serious thing to hold fast your confession without wavering. This is not a text to take lightly. In fact, I think we need a little bit of historical perspective in order that as we drive out of our two-car garages, three-car garages in our middle American suburban homes and we drive to this, this church which we own outright, the government doesn't own this property and we, we meet together in complete safety and nobody's calling for our heads and, and nobody, as far as I know, has been threatened with job loss for the sake of their faith. It's hard for us to feel what it means to hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. But feel it we must. To hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering could cost you your job, it could cost you your reputation, it could cost you your property, it could cost you your comfort, it could cost you your life. It has cost that and more for countless believers just like us down through the ages. In fact, it had already cost the congregation to which this author wrote. I want you to look down a little bit further in chapter 10. Look down at verse 32. He says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering. 
Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It had already cost them something to hold fast their confession. It was going to cost them more. Because in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 4, he says, You have not yet, yet, Resisted to the point of shedding blood. You haven't shed blood for your faith yet. But it's coming. More intense persecution and martyrdom awaited them in future days. In fact, if we're correct in our assessment that this letter was written in and around AD 64 to a Jewish Christian congregation located in Rome, then we know that they had already endured some persecution at the hands of the Jewish community in Rome, leading to some oppression from the state in the reign of the Emperor Claudius. But we also know that within a couple of years, Nero is going to have many of them rounded up, covered in tar, and set on fire to light the streets of Rome. This church. The author knows what he's doing when he says, hold fast your confession without wavering. It means something now was not the time to waver in unbelief now is the time to hold fast and to persevere to the very end so in that context i find myself asking him how does a pastor prepare his church to suffer how does he prepare his church to persevere when people are going to get set on fire for the sake of christ How do we prepare? Because I want you to make no mistake, persecution is not just a reality for a faraway church in a faraway time. It's for today, it is for us, it is in our not so distant future. And I'm not a prophet or the son of the prophet, but I can tell you exactly where the first foray of persecution is going to come. It's going to come on the battleground of same-sex marriage. You ready to pay the price? You ready to lose your tax-exempt status for that? You ready to lose your job? It's coming. It's coming. But following Christ faithfully will always, always put us at odds with the world. For all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let me throw that at you again. All, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I would venture to say that if our faith and our lifestyle, which is but the fruit of faith, does not bring us into conflict with the world and its people and its powers. The reason is not that the world has become more godly, but that the godly have become more worldly. So let's strap on our gear this morning and prepare for war. That's what we're here to do. It's a battle out there. And if you're not ready, you're going to die. You'll cave. We'll cave. 
got to be prepared. That's going to be the theme of the rest of Hebrews chapter 10. It's a call to perseverance. Over the next few weeks together in this text, we will see both the danger of not persevering, 26 to 31, and the reward that awaits those who do persevere, 32 to 39. But today, today we're just going to focus in on verses 23 to 25, and we're going to highlight three aspects of perseverance. I'll give them to you at the start. We're going to look at the grounds of perseverance. Why do we persevere? We're going to look at the nature of perseverance. How do we persevere? And we're going to look at the church that perseveres. What is, it, what is it like? What are its characteristics? So let's look at the grounds first. In order to get this point, we need to start with a fundamental presupposition. All right? We need to establish something from the beginning. And that is that words matter. Especially God-breathed words. They matter the most. Especially God-breathed words that connect thoughts together into logical arguments. See, the, the truth of Scripture is built upon the fors and the therefores and the in-order thats of the biblical text because those little connectives help us get into the mind of the biblical author and to see what he is saying and why he says what he says. We need the fors and the therefores and the in-order thats and we've got an enormous one sitting at the beginning of verse 19. Therefore, Let us draw near. Verse 22. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 23. Therefore, let us consider how we may stimulate one another to love and good deeds. All that comes before the therefore is the grounds of these exhortations that we've been unpacking over the last couple of weeks. And then in the case of verse 23, we have another grounds that comes right after. Not only therefore, because of all that he said prior, but we are to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Do you see the way those two things fit together? We're going to reach back, and we're going to reach forward, and we're going to pull those two grounds together, and we're going to put them as a foundation underneath this exhortation to hold fast our confession. Church, hold fast your confession. Why? Number one, Because of the sufficient saving work of Christ on your behalf. The sufficient saving work of Christ, who is our great high priest, which has been the theme of verses 5 through 10. It's the referent to the therefore. Jesus Christ is your sufficient saving high priest. Therefore, hold fast your confession. That's the way it works. See, there's a reason why the author spent so long, chapter by chapter by chapter, laying this doctrinal foundation of the gospel, explaining all about the new covenant and the sufficiency of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice and the glory of His priestly mediation on our behalf, how He represents us before the Father, how He sprinkled the throne of grace, how He's opened up a new and living way. There's a reason why He says that. Because it matters. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. The martyrs of the ages did not die for suggestions about how to raise a better family or ten steps to financial freedom or five principles for having your best life now. They didn't burn at the stake for that. They burned at the stake for the truth of Christ. 
Namely, the truth that we've been unpacking over the last four and five weeks. Months. They died for Christ and His gospel believing that this message is the only message that saves. It's the only message worth dying for. This truth. What truth? Hebrews 5-10. through That there's one sacrifice that can take away our sins. That there's one high priest who is qualified and willing to save us and to bring us to God. That truth. That truth is our life. It is our hope. It's that truth that we're to hold fast to without wavering. We dare not abandon it. We dare not neglect it. We dare not twist it. Rather, we, we confess it, we, we take our stand upon it, we shed our blood for it because salvation hangs in the balance. Just read verses 26 to 31. Salvation hangs in the balance because there's only one priest and there's only one covenant and there's only one sacrifice and there's only one offering able to perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. There's only one gospel. There's only one hope. Hold fast. Your confession. The second ground, however, if you jump over the exhortation to the last part of verse 23, is the faithfulness of God to His promise. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. What's the promise? Promise has been a central theme in the book of Hebrews. It's going to be the central theme of Hebrews 11. In fact, I want you to turn over to Hebrews 11. I want to walk through it with you just very briefly. What is this promise that God will be faithful to that serves as the grounds for our holding fast the confession? It's the reward that is promised to those who seek God. Hebrews 11.6 It is the righteousness that is by faith promised to Noah, 11.7. It is the promise made to Abraham of a land, a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God, verses 9 and 10. It's the promise of a people, a family, more numerous than the stars of the sky and of the sand of of the seashore, verses 11 and 12. It is the better country, the heavenly one, the city which God has prepared for His people, verse 16. It is the reward promised to Moses that he found better than all the treasures of Egypt. Verse 26. It is the place among God's people that was promised to Rahab. Verse 31. It's belonging to God. It is the better resurrection promised to those who persevere to the end. Verse 34. In short, it is salvation. That's the promise. It's the forgiveness of sins and the gift of righteousness and an everlasting life and a new heavens and a new earth where God dwells in the midst of His people. And the theme of Hebrews chapter 11 will be that that promise, in all of its glorious detail, that promise is for all those and only those who persevere to the end. Who persevere by faith, by faith, by faith. They receive that promise. 
trading, this is the other theme, trading each one of them, the temporary comforts and worldly pleasures of this world for the lasting and eternal heavenly joys. That is a trade that the faithful are willing to make because they are convinced that God is faithful to His promise and that what He has promised far outweighs the fleeting suburbia comforts that we so love in this life. That's why we persevere. That's why we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, because God can be trusted. See, perseverance is not a work. It's not grit your teeth and stay in the fire. Perseverance is faith. Faith in the faithfulness of God. If you were to persevere through trials and tribulations and persecutions and loss of reputation and loss of comfort and loss of life, you must believe. And I'm not talking about mental assent to a certain set of facts. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a living faith that believes that what God has promised is infinitely better than anything I may be asked to give up. And you must believe that God is willing and able to deliver on that promise. So First Baptist Nixa, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Do you trust Him? Do you believe that what you can't see is infinitely greater than what you can? Do you believe that the joy that He has promised in His presence forever so infinitely outweighs the the fleeting pleasures that I may be asked to give up in this life? Do you believe that? Because you'll never persevere if you don't. Not when the fire heats up. Fasten your seatbelts, church. Hebrews 11 is going to challenge us to examine where our hope is. is. Is it in this world or is it in the next? But what does it mean to persevere? Let's look at the nature of perseverance. Verse 23, the author uses the word confession. It's a word that conveys an outward, evident, visible, audible profession of faith. Words are required for confession. Words and actions Words and actions that don't contradict one another. That's confession. It's a reminder that following Christ is a public commitment and never merely a private conviction. Let's say that again. The word confession to which we're called to hold fast reminds us that following Christ is never merely a private conviction. It is a public commitment. It's what Paul says. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Awana kids know it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made, resulting in salvation. Faith and confession belong together. Like a root to its fruit. The confession being the evidence of the faith. This public confession of our faith and of our allegiance to Christ has a 
definite beginning, and that beginning is invisible form, baptism. Baptism is where we are visibly and sacramentally buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. Every once in a while, it doesn't happen often, it hasn't happened here since I've been here, but every once in a while, somebody will come to a pastor and they will say, I'd like to be baptized, but I'd like to be baptized privately. To which faithful pastors should say, absolutely not. Baptism is not a private affair. It is a public renunciation of the world. It is a public renunciation of your former life. It is a public confession of your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and your allegiance to Him and your desire to follow Him to the rest of your days. It is a public church event. So if you've never been baptized here, if you've never been baptized wherever you are, if you've never been baptized, this text is to you a call to come out from among them and be ye separate. It it is a call to receive the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism, this public and visible testimony that you belong to Christ and that you're a part of His people, the church, come what may. See, the thing about a private private conviction, a private faith that really is nobody else's business, is that I can set it aside when the going gets tough. A faith that you can set aside in order to conform to the world is not saving faith. So anyone here who has come to a knowledge of the truth, who believes in Jesus, if you have not come out and said, I belong to Him, I'm a part of His people, which is exactly what baptism declares, come to the water. Come. And step out in faith. But what about the baptized? The vast majority of you here this morning. How do we hold fast the confession? We continue in the faith and the new life that was portrayed in baptism, right? What do we say at every baptism, which is our public confession of faith? We say, for you were buried with him in baptism and raised to walk how? In newness of life. So holding fast your confession is continuing to walk in newness of life no matter what. It means trusting in Christ. Following Christ. Telling others about Christ. It does not mean standing on a street corner with a cardboard placard shouting that the end is near. It's not obnoxious. But it is private and public faith. Private and public following of Christ. The public and the private joining together to create a light that shines forth in the darkness of the world with the light of Christ. That's what it means. Words and actions uniting together to say, I belong to Jesus. First Baptist Nixa, hold fast your confession without wavering. On your job, in your family, inside the closed doors of your home, here at church, out in the grocery store, out on the ball field. Don't be one of those obnoxious parents that yells at the umpire. Everywhere. Words and actions that say, I belong to Jesus. 
and ultimately words and actions that say I belong to Jesus when your life depends on it. When your profession depends on it. When your reputation depends on it. But how? Some of you, I know this because this churns in my mind. Some of you are thinking, I couldn't do what Latimer and Ridley did. Couldn't do what Cranmer eventually did. I don't know if my faith is strong enough to endure that kind of persecution. I like my comfort. I like my reputation. I like my life. You wondering that? How do we shine in the darkness when the darkness is so suffocating? How do we shine in the darkness when the darkness isn't just out there external, but it's also in here? Warring against the desires of the Spirit. How how do I hold fast the confession of my hope when I'm tied to the stake in Oxford, England with sticks and straw at my feet about to be lit on fire? How do I persevere then? How do you persevere then? You know what you need? You need a Hugh Latimer to turn to you and stand beside you in the fire and to say, be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Be the man. You know what we're going to do today? We're not just dying. We're lighting a candle of reformation that's never going to be extinguished. We need a Hugh Latimer. How do I hold fast the confession of my hope in the locker room? Which is, in my experience at least, just a cesspool of profanity and coarse joking and boasts of sexual conquests and pornographic cell phone images. How do I hold fast my confession then? I need another believer with me, standing beside me, encouraging me, saying, stand firm, don't give in. What God has promised you in Christ far outweighs the fleeting pleasures of sin. You see where I'm going. Because you've looked down, you see I'm headed to verse 24. See, perseverance is not an individual endeavor. It's not up to you only. It's not me against the world. Because if that were the case, I would never make it. My faith is far too weak. The world and the flesh and the devil are far too strong. I would be squashed like a little bug. Perseverance is a corporate endeavor. It's a church endeavor. It takes place in community. Persevering Fruit-bearing trees are rooted in the soil of strong, vibrant, healthy, local churches. I think that's the connection between verses 23 and 24. Which read this. Let us consider, and let us consider. Right? It's not the beginning of a sentence. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope firm without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's suicide. Don't do that. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? The day of Christ's return and right before that, the day of intense heat. It's coming. So we need that mutual encouragement. We need that mutual considering of how to stimulate one another. It's the church that stimulates and encourages one another to persevere in faith and in love and in good works. And it does so in light of the imminent return of Christ when faith will be made sight. When Jesus returns with His reward in His hand to give the promise to those who persevere. Beloved, we need one another. And we need one another on two distinct levels. Look at me. Some of you are missing out. We need one another on two distinct levels. Level one, we need this. We need the corporate gathering of the church. We need the worship that takes place here. We need the encouragement and the exhortation and the conviction that comes from the Scripture. We need the Word of Christ as it is sung and as it is preached and as it is prayed and as it is made visible in the sacraments. We need this. These these 90 minutes every Sunday morning have such a powerfully reorienting effect on my heart. It reminds me of what is real and of what is illusion. It reminds me of who is king and who is not. It readjusts my focus and my perspective on my job and on my home and on my family and on my friends and every sphere of life is strengthened by this 90 minutes. I know without a doubt that I am far more equipped to hold fast the confession of my hope at 12 noon on a Sunday afternoon than I am at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday morning or or 10 p.m. on a Friday night. Without a doubt. They could probably string me up to a stake in about 30 minutes and I would endure to the end. Because it's so filled up by being here. It's Friday night that scares me. Which we'll talk about in a second. Because what I do here, what I invite you to do here, is to drink in grace and joy and truth. Be encouraged to love and good deeds. Beloved, I, I need this. I need you. I need this. My endurance to the end depends upon this time and so does yours. But this isn't enough. Corporate worship is not the only level of assembling together that I need. Because you don't know half of my struggles and I don't know half of yours. We don't do a lot of Sharing in corporate worship. We can't. It just simply isn't the setting for it. 
We, we can't dialogue over and interact with and fellowship around the word of truth and apply it and, and press that truth in like a dagger into our hearts. We, we can't do that kind of mutual interaction in these 90 minutes. We cannot confess our sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed, James 5.16. We cannot ask for and receive loving accountability from trusted brothers and sisters. We cannot be sharp and incisive and specific in our stimulating to love and good deeds. So where does that happen? Where do I actually get some interaction, some dialogue, some accountability, some, you know what, I saw that post on Facebook and it dis- discouraged me a little bit. I just wanted to ask you about it, check and see where your heart is. You know, I've seen the way, just notice some things that kind of disturb me about the interaction between you and your wife, and I just want to know, how is your marriage? Are you doing everything that you can to make sure that that's strong and healthy? Let me, let me ask you how this is happening. Where does that happen? It happens in small groups. We need small group discipleship, small group fellowship, small group accountability. That's where the mutual stimulation takes place. That word is a terrific word, by the way. It's translated stimulate in New American Standard, provoke in King James, stir up in English Standard, spur on in the NIV. It's the same word that is used in Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens, stimulates one another. Where are you getting sharpened? We need to be sharpened, and this sharpening of one another occurs in small groups. And at First Baptist Nixa, we call these connect groups. We need connect groups to be a place where believers are sharpened, where accountability takes place, where sin is confessed and prayed over and healed, where deep friendships are forged, where life is shared, where we persevere together in faith, encouraging one another through trials, through job loss, through cancer, through the loss of a spouse, through the loss of a child, through mourning and grieving and tribulation and pain and death. We persevere together and we prepare to meet Christ and we prepare and remain faithful in the coming day of the Lord. And that happens by this wonderful combination of corporate worship and small group discipleship joining together to make a church. And I want you to know that your pastors, the three of us, Mike and Gordon and I, we are, we are on a journey to make Connect do just that. It's not there yet. We're moving it there. I just want to lay some groundwork. It's going to take some drastic changes. Be ready and be willing because it's worth it because we will not endure the storm that's coming without it. I don't want to be a soft and pudgy church. I don't want to love suburbia more than I love the kingdom. I don't want my heart to be chained by comfort to where I'm never taking risks 
for the sake of Christ. You don't want that. Or at least you won't want it in about a hundred years. I want to be a strong, vibrant, courageous, valiant, bold, risk-taking, life-giving, spirit-filled, grace-overflowing, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying church. That's what I want to be. But, if that is going to describe First Baptist Nicks, I think we need to make at least three commitments. You see them there at the bottom of your bulletin. You cannot be strong and vibrant unless you are strong in doctrine. So we must commit to being strong in doctrine. Theologically soft, doctrinally pudgy churches do not endure tribulation. They fall away. Theologically soft, doctrinally pudgy churches will form the mass of those who commit the great apostasy at the end times. They will fall away. We're not going to be among them. We must be a church that is theologically strong and doctrinally precise. Truth matters. Theology matters. Confessions of faith matter. Catechisms matter. And they matter not just for pastors. They matter for everyone. We must commit to being strong in our doctrine. Number two, we must commit to being bold in our confession. We need to get out. Nixon needs to know who we are and more importantly, who we worship, who we follow, to whom we belong. Acts 1.8 says we received power when the Holy Spirit came upon us. Power for a purpose, right? So that we may be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Borrow from Piper for a second. It's the worst the world can do. The worst the world can do if we're bold in our confession is kill us. So it's a win-win either way. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain for churches that are strong in doctrine. Strong in doctrine and bold in confession go together. And we must be both and we must be a third. We must commit to risk-taking love. Strong in doctrine, bold in confession, Committed to risk-taking love. Love is costly. Missions are risky. But Jesus has called us to bear a cross. He's called us to a cross-bearing, death-embracing faith that gives everything to know Him and to make Him known. You may not come back. You probably will. You might not. You okay with that? You will be when you're strong in doctrine, bold in confession, and committed to risk-taking love. That's what strong and vibrant churches do. That's what First Baptist Nix is going to do by God's grace. Be of good cheer, future martyrs. And play the man. 
Let's light a candle that by God's grace will never be extinguished. Our God and our 